The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. Well, today is the second week of the three-week series on the holistic path. So we're examining... You don't have to have been here for the other one, by the way. Each one can stand alone. So don't worry about that. And we're examining the three different segments of the Eightfold Path that are often described. So I'll just review that briefly. Uh, The steps of the path that are related to sila, or ethical conduct, is what we talked about last week. And those are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then there's also three steps of the path that are related to mental development, uh, and they're generally called the samadhi steps of the path. And those are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And that's what we'll talk about mainly today. And then there's two steps left, and those steps are called the the panya, or the wisdom steps of the path. And that refers to right view and right intention. And these are definitely not linear. They're interrelated, but it's helpful to have a breakdown into these three different kind of domains of practice or of development. So what I'm aiming to do in these talks is to specifically go over what the components of each segment of the path are, and then also talk about how they relate to, interact, and play off of each other as the path is developed through our practice. So today we're focusing on the samadhi steps. Again, these are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we talked about last week the sila steps were broadly about outer and relational actions. And what we turn to here is more toward inner cultivation, toward the dimension that's uh, accessible through meditation, through the development of our own heart and mind. There's a passage in the Anguttara Nikaya that says, No other thing do I know, O practitioners, that brings so much suffering as an undeveloped and uncultivated mind. No other thing do I know that brings so much happiness as a developed and cultivated mind. This was said by the Buddha. Or from the Dhammapada. The mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes, the sage does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. So the teachings are are very clear at the top level that it's this mental development that really leads to a a deeper happiness even than we can attain in the outer world through having a certain kind of life, having a good job, having a good relationship. All these things are good, uh, the right amount of money. Uh, These things certainly promote a certain kind of happiness and the Buddha encouraged us to pursue lives that that give us those things. Um, But... It doesn't stop there. There's an additional layer that we can cultivate in the heart, in the mind, that bring even greater happiness. So let's start with right effort. 
Right effort is placed perfectly at this location in the path, uh, right in between the sila steps and the more meditative steps of mindfulness and concentration because it encompasses both outward action and the formal practice of meditation. So uh, effort, spiritual effort, as it's referred to in the path, has to do with uh, eliminating and preventing unwholesome mind states and developing and maintaining wholesome mind states. And so you can apply that to actions or to mind states, actually, because the outward actions, of course, are coming from inward mind states that we have. So at the level of sila, we're cultivating not stealing, not killing, etc. And then then at some point, that comes inward, and we start saying, okay, what is it that's producing that? Where is that coming from? And how can we develop the mind to be a, a safer place? Right effort is generally said to have four components. Uh, we're instructed to abandon unwholesome mind states that are here. So we notice that we're angry or something else that's unwholesome. And the effort is to let go of that. doesn't mean make it go away, suppress it, deny it but let go of it so that it uh, dissipates on its own or so that it's not controlling us. In addition, we are to guard against or prevent the arising of unwholesome mind states that aren't here. So we're fine right now, um, but uh, how can we prevent ourselves from being triggered by things that we know make us angry? What can we do right now? This is a little more subtle. What can we do right now to prevent something from happening Uh, in the future that may bring us into an unwholesome mind state. That requires a little self-knowledge to understand how to do that. Third, we are to cultivate wholesome mind states that aren't here yet. So, um, you know, how can I bring about greater peace? How can I bring about greater patience, generosity, other wholesome mind states that I would, it would help me if I had more of them? So it's okay to want things, <laughs> to, to, to aim for things. There's, this path is not only about uh, equanimity and letting go and so forth. And in addition, we are to, fourthly, maintain wholesome mind states that have arisen. Oh, uh, you know, there's metta in my heart right now. Don't let it fall away. <laughs> Keep it. <laughs> it's, it's a good one. <laughs> so there's definitely a... a this part of the path is active. It, it's, it chooses. Um, it chooses what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, which has been developed through the sila steps. Um, we know what to do, what not to do, what's wise, what's not wise. That's been developed. That's actually also part of discernment, the first part of the path. So that we now make effort to bring about a, a state of mind or heart that has these good qualities. Each of those four top-level components flowers into a whole set of specific practices. So, for example, abandoning can be done in a lot of ways. Uh, Simple mindfulness is an excellent way to abandon. So being aware at this moment, um, you know, there's anger. And instead of acting out the anger or getting caught up in it or hating the anger, so reacting against it in some way, Uh, We're simply aware that this is anger. This is what anger feels like. It's here. 
And that alone is a letting go in a certain way. We're no longer entangled with it. The part that's aware of anger is not angry, is sometimes how it's said. <coughs> the Buddhist teachings also recommend contemplating the disadvantages of unwholesome states. So um, say you're feeling a lot of shame at a given moment and you can really feel for yourself this is what shame feels like and with a little bit of, you can bring in a little bit of of contemplation to that, of of understanding intellectual um, engagement and realize, oh, in this state, because I feel shameful, I'm probably going to choose not to help somebody because I feel embarrassed, ashamed, unworthy in some way. If a situation were to arise where someone needed help, I might not have that compassion available, that generosity available. This is a disadvantage of feeling shame, a disadvantage of having that. We're often attached to our unwholesome negative mind states we like our anger in some way we like our sadness that's why we keep doing it somehow it feels like us but contemplating that having it prevents certain things from happening or may cause actions that are unwholesome to happen we start to let go at some deeper level we don't need that uh, that unwholesome state to define who we are anymore There are active uh, abandoning practices also. So, for example, cultivating metta in cases where we know we have a heart that tends toward anger. That can be helpful or toward self-judgment. The active cultivation of the Brahma-viharas can help to uh, disengage our heart from those unwholesome states. The second task, guarding, is often related strongly to mindfulness. So guarding against unwholesome states from arising, mindfulness at the sense doors, you know, just knowing, being able to catch that first moment of anger or of sadness or of depression um, or of greed. Uh, Catching the first moment is much better than letting it run for a while and then realizing, oh, it's here, I have to work with it. If you catch the first moment, it can be possible to say no not going to do that. So that's part of the the guarding, the prevention. Cultivation is a whole realm of exploration and of of itself, cultivating wholesome mind states. I actually mentioned that as a way of abandoning, is turning it around into cultivation. But there are other ones, cultivating concentration. Um, Hearing the Dharma is a wonderful way to cultivate a state of stillness or peace generosity practice. Mostly I'm giving a top-level survey. Keeping the precepts. Um, This is an interesting one because it points toward restraint as a form of development, which is not something I had thought of for a while in my practice. It was pointed out to me by a teacher, actually, that not a moment of not (laughs) killing, stealing, lying is a cultivation also of something positive, something wholesome. So, for example, um, not engaging in anger cultivates compassion in a certain way. And so understanding that is, is helpful, especially if we're doing kind of a 
a tally at the end of the day. Uh, and it doesn't seem like we've done much to cultivate. It was mostly fighting fires all day, <laughs> not being impatient, not being angry, not being greedy. But all that, all that restraint that you brought your practice to bear in order to, to have, all of that was actually cultivating more wholesome qualities of peace, of patience, whether it felt like it or not. And maintaining good states is, wholesome states, is very much about, again, the job of mindfulness. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, there's a whole realm, one quarter of, of right effort is about appreciating and noticing the good things in our heart. How often do we do that, really? We tend to focus on the suffering, the negative, the things I need to fix, change, do, develop. But a whole section of this is about maintaining wholesome qualities that are here. Do we know what wholesome qualities are in our heart at this moment? Have we looked? At this moment there might be patience, there might be love, there might be um, contentment with just being right here. These are beautiful wholesome qualities and by directing our attention toward them, we actually feed them, um, strengthen them in a certain way. They won't last forever, of course not, but knowing that they're here and appreciating them is a great way to further develop them and make it more likely that they'll happen in the future too. As effort develops, several things happen. Um, First, it moves toward being concerned with wholesome and unwholesome states of mind, kind of um, separating it and lifting it away from the sila steps. That's why it's pulled out as a separate step, is that we may start with practices in the sila realm that are about um, stopping actions and speech that are harmful or cultivating actions and speech that are helpful. And at some point, the mind turns toward where is that coming from? And... You know, uh, before it gets to the point that I've acted or spoken, um, what is going on in this being, uh, in this heart, heart mind? So we're going inward, getting closer to the source of our suffering, which, as the Buddha says, is the dart in our heart. We're getting closer down to that source. And the closer you can get to the source, of course, the easier it is to prevent things. Those of you who work in environmental areas or have environmental concern, you know there's a difference, right, between cleaning up the end of the pipeline. So waste remediation is a different concept than green design. Does this make sense? The farther back, you know, can we design this to be environmentally conscious from the very beginning? Or are we trying to do cleanup efforts after we've done the whole... uh, production of industrial waste and now we're just going to try to figure out how to clean up the stuff that's getting dumped in the bay. So in the same way, can we get closer to the source of our suffering so that it doesn't get as far downstream before we're trying to do something about it? I don't know if that analogy works completely, but I think it's a nice one uh, to think about as we cultivate effort. It also means that you have to exert less effort at the front end, right? It's easier to prevent. What is it, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cures? That's old common wisdom or something. So 
Another thing about effort, which maybe is along the same analogy, is that it tends to simplify as we practice it. So I mentioned, I, I gave us kind of an overview of that whole realm of effort practice. I hope you didn't feel overwhelmed by all of that. It's like, oh my gosh, I have to cultivate, I have to abandon, I have to, there's all these different things. Every specific problem in my mind, I have to learn how to address it. Actually, um, we start settling into a more general avoidance of the feeling of contraction in our heart that accompanies any kind of unwholesome state. As we learn about anger, about sadness, about happiness, about peace, we, we begin to get a sense, I alluded to this at the end of the Sila talk, we begin to get a sense in our own heart of what it feels like when we're acting in ways that are unwholesome or acting in ways that are wholesome or skillful. And so even before we have a specific particular instance of that, of what we're saying, what we're doing, we can feel um, energetically in our heart what that feels like. And the effort then becomes keeping the heart open, uh, keeping the awareness broad, keeping the awareness from contracting into me. Um, And that can happen at a a quicker level than um, the bluntness of words or action sometimes. We also come to realize that the only way that right effort can happen is if we're aware of our experience. There's no way you can choose unwholesome or wholesome. There's no way you can try to prevent the contraction of the heart if you're not aware of what that is, which leads toward the next step of the path, mindfulness, right mindfulness. So we start realizing, oh, I've got to be here. I've got to know what's happening in order to uh, engage in these practices of, of effort. Ajahn Suchito says, succinctly that the main effort we need is the effort to be mindful, actually. That's a very broad simplification. I think the four, breaking it up into the four is still useful, um, you know, useful for practical, working with this practically. But at a top level, he's kind of right. So we've arrived at mindfulness. We thought we were doing mindfulness meditation all this time, but we have to get to the seventh step of the path before mindfulness even appears so why is it so late (laughs) in a sense I think this is a clear indication that the path is not linear Uh, as we've been discussing it's really holistic of course mindfulness is needed all along the path and that's what we practice all the time in some ways but it's also useful that it's separated out as its own step of the path and that's what we'll we'll talk about now is what what it means for mindfulness to be a a component of the path. Mindfulness has some subtlety. Uh, Broadly speaking, it means knowing what's happening as it's happening, or more simply, non-distraction. I've also heard it usefully described by a teacher as attention with a wisdom component. So attention that is not flavored by greed, hatred, or delusion in some way. Um a clean, kind attention. And yet, uh, it's not totally bare. There are are teachers who will say mindfulness is the same as bare intention. Maybe that's true in some cases, but I, I, I would like to point toward this wonderful quote by B. Allen Wallace, who says, When mindfulness is equated with bare attention... 
it can easily lead to the misconception that the cultivation of mindfulness has nothing to do with ethics or with the cultivation of wholesome states of mind and the attenuation of unwholesome states. Nothing could be further from the truth. So isn't that interesting? He says, look at how he brings in other components of the path. It can lead to the misconception that the cultivation of mindfulness has nothing to do with ethics, the three components of the, the three sila components, or with the cultivation of wholesome states and the attenuation of unwholesome states. That was effort. That's what we just talked about. Mindfulness has everything to do with sila and with effort, with the other components of the path. They're all mixed together. They're drawn together. So if you think that mindfulness is totally bare attention, just noticing exactly what's here, you could be very attentive in the present moment while telling a lie (laughs) or while stealing something. Well, I was attentive, I was there for it, so I was mindful. If you were, of course, doing these things deliberately with the intention of investigating the pain of them, um, that's a more subtle practice, but maybe that would be fine. But generally, right, mindfulness does not include simply engaging attentively in unwholesome actions without any judgment. I am remembering there was a, an Asian teacher who... Um, really liked a certain kind of sweet and just was annoyed with the fact that he had so much greed for this particular dessert and his mind would go there. So one day he very deliberately ate so much of it that it made him completely sick. And he was very mindful of the pain of greed and what it brings about and the resulting anguish of his body. And he never wanted that again. (laughs) So done right, okay, but... um, you know, we're not going to do that as an everyday mindfulness practice. Hmm. So there's much, much more could be said about mindfulness. It's a huge, wonderful topic. But as a step on the path, as a step on the path, mindfulness is, can be seen as something that's being developed in us. The path is, describes the things that are developed as we engage in this practice. So what does that mean, to develop mindfulness? Um... We all have some degree of mindfulness, actually, as humans, and it changes from moment to moment, and it changes throughout our life. So as our practice develops in particular, we may notice that the way we're mindful or the the feeling we have when we're mindful changes, actually. If you're practicing for 40 years, it's probably different than we've been practicing for four years. I wouldn't know about the 40, but I imagine it would be different. I've already seen changes in you know, in the way mindfulness works for me. Actually, Andrea has said that um, practice is a process of lowering the floor on our consciousness. And again, this is just an analogy, but I think it's a nice one. Deeper and deeper aspects of experience are brought into awareness through practice. And this is because mindfulness is a wholesome state, so when we engage in it and observe it and appreciate it, we get more of it and we get deeper of it. And so over time, uh, we become aware of more things. I've certainly seen this in myself. One example would be awareness during speech. Uh, I think when I started practicing, this was almost impossible for me. I could not speak and be mindful at the same time. I had never even thought about trying that. And when I did, it's like, whoa, this is really hard. Um, Realizing the suffering of this, uh, I became more attentive and over time have learned to that there's actually 
huge, other large dimensions going on during speech that I was completely unaware of before, such as how my body feels. It's not just the content of the speech, which is good to be mindful of also. How my body feels, how the other person seems to be responding, um, what's my intention, why am I saying what I'm about to say. Um, All these dimensions are there to be noticed, but we don't necessarily Um, And so as mindfulness develops, we have the capacity in our mind to be aware of more of these dimensions. And it doesn't necessarily mean that awareness gets larger and larger and larger and you can simultaneously track 27,000 things. It's actually that wisdom comes in and you are mindful of the correct component that you should be mindful of at that moment. So maybe when I'm speaking at this moment, it's helpful for me to be aware of my intention. and then when someone is responding and I'm listening, it's helpful for me to be in my body. And the, the heart sort of learns to intuitively navigate this space and be aware of the right thing. As a practical suggestion, one thing, that if you're thinking about you know, wanting to be more mindful during speech, I love the practice of feeling my feet um, during speech because speech is so much about rising into our head and you know leaping forth. Um, can we feel the ground <laughs> that we're on? It's an interesting practice just to, to try that if you wanted. So how does mindfulness... Um, Develop. It develops generally toward having more continuity. That's the way it goes. As well as, you know, I talked about this breadth and being aware of more dimensions. The way that that can happen is that we're aware for more moments. Um, if we're missing three moments out of four, uh, it's hard to really get a handle on what's causing what. We really um, have a moment where we can step in between the intention and the action. If we're not mindful through that, we'll, we'll just act before we can see. So naturally, as we cultivate mindfulness, we tend to have more moments where that's true and more sustained, you know, a longer sustaining of that being true. This is something that's particularly cultivated on retreat, but it can be cultivated through daily life practice also. Continuity of mindfulness leads to much greater clarity about what is happening. The image gets more into focus, if you will. Um, If you're on the deck of a tossing and turning ship, we can't really get a good picture. If we had a camera, it would come out all blurry. But if we're standing on dry land, it's no problem to get a clear image of what's happening. So that points toward steadiness of mind which is right concentration, the third component of the samadhi steps. It's actually the component for which this segment is named. Samadhi is the word that's usually translated as concentration. So in a way, effort and mindfulness are pointing toward concentration, and that's why I've kind of done it as a series in this particular section of the path. I think they're interlinked in that way on these, in these three steps. There's a lot of misunderstanding around samadhi and a, not a little conflict sometimes about what it really means, what, it, what counts, what doesn't count, uh, what do you have to achieve, achieve in order to say that you've attained certain states of concentration. There, there's a 
people can be very interested in this topic and teachers can debate about it. I think we're going to avoid talking about all of that today. Um, <laughs> focusing again on concentration as a step of the path. It's something that develops. What does that mean for it to, to develop? And a steady, attentive mind is something that can be developed or cultivated, which is an important thing to know, by the way. Sometimes I've had people say to me, oh, I sat down to meditate, but I just, I just couldn't do it, so I, I don't do it anymore. You know, I sat down and my mind was everywhere, so I realized that I can't meditate. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, but this is, um, this is something that develops. You know, you, you couldn't play the piano the first time you sat down either. So do we have some confidence that this is something that can be developed over time? It's an interesting question to ask ourselves. So it's a step of the path. The Buddha was very clear that this is something that develops, that can be developed. To explore samadhi and how it develops, it might be interesting to start with the result. What are the qualities of a concentrated mind? Would we recognize it? How do we know what that is? Samadhi, etymologically, literally means to stand together in Pali. Gil talks about this. So to stand together. And so an English translation that might be equivalent is composure. Composure. Calm is together. Pose is to stand. So a mind that's composed uh, may sound like a different thing than a mind that's concentrated, depending how you see that word. People tend to think of this, you know, laser-like, small. um, Whereas a mind that's composed... A person who's composed is acting in a composed way. That's a, a different thing. I tend to, to describe, put, put words on composure that would be things like undistracted, undissipated, uh, unidirectional in a certain way. All the parts of the mind are going in the same direction. You don't, you're not thinking one thing, doing another, sitting in a certain way, talking in a certain way, and they're all different, <laughs> um, which is possible when the mind is completely scattered. Uh, but a mind that's unified, composed, uh, knows what it's doing, is acting in a consistent way, is aware of what's happening, undistracted, undissipated. It doesn't have the imbalances of greed, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, or doubt, which are the five hindrances to concentration. We won't talk about those in detail today. But uh, it's a mind that's absent of all those stumbling blocks that get in the way. As you might imagine, this kind of mind feels really great. (laughs) Uh, Imagine what your mind would feel like if it contained no greed, no aversion, no sloth and torpor, no restlessness and anxiety, and no doubt. What would that feel like? (laughs) That's how you'll know when you have a concentrated mind. So starting, I think starting with the result is helpful. I hope it was helpful. to illustrate that there are various routes toward having a concentrated mind. Um, One of the most straightforward and widely taught ways is to choose a single object for concentration and just steady the mind on that. Usually we use the breath. Um, That's what's offered as the object. But there are many possibilities. I think there are a total of 40 described in the teachings, and I don't know all of them. But essentially the the task, the the technique for achieving concentration is to have an object that we return to again and again. When we find that we're not on it, we bring the mind back. 
Um, the reason this works is that uh, we're not feeding the hindrances. So the greed, the aversion, the distractedness, the tiredness. We don't put any energy into that. Every time the mind wanders into that territory, we say, oops, that's not what we're doing. We're focusing on the breath, on the breath, on the breath. And so uh, slowly through starvation, those other things fade away on their own. Stuff doesn't just exist forever. It exists for reasons, for causes, because it's being fed. And so if we don't feed it, it will eventually end. That's what we discover through concentration and what's left is this purified, concentrated mind. I once uh, observed the inverse of this. I was, it was early in my practice and I was um, sitting and I was just starting to feel the first feelings of having a composed mind and how good that felt. It's like, wow, I actually am starting to feel some peace here. And then, floating up through my mindful mind at that moment, um, was a thought of lust. <laughs> and it, it came through, and literally in that moment, um, my spine collapsed. <laughs> it was like I could feel physically. I, I had been sitting you know, upright in this nice um, posture that was relaxed and alert, and then this, this hindrance floated through. I paid some attention to it, and my posture uh, deteriorated in a certain way. Uh, it's like I, I sort of collapsed. And I realized, oh, wow, you know, concentration is sustained through a certain kind of energy, upright energy being present in the body. And I literally felt the dissipation of that energy and, and the consequent collapse of the body. I, I'm not saying that will, that's how it works always. Um, but in this instance, that was the indication for me that the composure, the standing together, the collectedness had been lost. It was a dissipation of my posture, if you will. So it's interesting to pay attention, however it's going to manifest for you. What does dissipation feel like? What does concentration feel like? You can learn for yourself how that works in your mind and body. The early Buddhist texts are pretty unambiguous about what right concentration is. It's described as consisting of the four jhanas, which are very deep focus on a single object where the mind merges with it um, and that does so in varying degrees as the mind moves into deeper states of happiness and equanimity. So that's kind of the, the direction that this practice of focusing on an object goes in. But there are other options also. Um, Another route to concentration is to allow a variety of changing experiences, not a single object, the changing experience of each moment to be what it is and to sustain attention on it without getting sucked in. So if we imagine experience as being a flow of sensations and thoughts, mind-body processes flowing by, can we just be there with that flow not ever sticking on to one of them, which is what happens when we go off onto a thought trail or when we get caught in an emotion. Can we just be with the flow? This is sustained how? One way is through a strong interest in being present for exactly what's happening. So if I'm interested in knowing what's happening every moment, I want to be aware of this moment and this moment and this moment, you know, what is happening each moment Every time the mind gets caught and, and gets sucked into a thought, I'm missing things. <laughs> I missed five moments because I was thinking about 
what happened yesterday. And so if we can kind of get the mind into that mode of being interested in knowing every single thing that's happening, uh, then we have access to this continual flow, which is also a form of concentration, to be with every moment as it happens without getting distracted. Non-distractedness, that's also, you know, that's mindfulness too. So when I talked about sila, I said that the fruit of sila is to remove the stain of transgression in the heart and mind, which means acting and speaking, manifesting uh, unwholesome qualities. Um, this kind of formal language is that that's the stain of transgression. So practicing the samadhi steps of the path, what does that eliminate? It eliminates the stain or suffering of obsession, is what it's called. Um, it's about working with the mind to eliminate harmful, harmful thoughts, interpretations, intentions, stories, things that get us caught up and not able to be with the present moment as it actually is, not able to have that clarity about what's really happening. Um, I think we all understand intuitively what obsession means <laughs> in our mind. Has anybody experienced that during meditation by any chance? So... Um, developing samadhi eliminates, reduces, and eventually eliminates the mind's tendency to be obsessed, which is a great relief. It's a great relief not to have to be caught up in anything. That's what, you know, that's the purification. It's a mind of equanimity that becomes bright, wieldly, very pure, very pure in, in how it feels. The path doesn't end with concentration, though. Uh, it's the last step in the formal description of the path, but it's not the culmination of the path. Actually, uh, the concentrated mind is intended to be used, to be used as a tool. It can see very clearly what's happening as it's happening, and it's intended to be directed in a certain way. How? wisely. That's the next, pulling into the next portion of the path. But here's the classic language. With his concentrated mind thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, the practitioner directs it to knowledge of the destruction of the taints. What does that mean? He understands as it actually is. This is suffering. He understands as it actually is. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So we direct our concentrated mind toward understanding the Four Noble Truths in this passage. It can also be directed particularly toward observing what are called the three characteristics of experience, of uh, anicca, continual change, um, dukkha, the suffering or oppressiveness quality of experience, or anatta, the not-self component of experience. We direct our concentrated mind toward those themes, toward the themes that the Buddha taught as being liberating understandings 
that will free the mind from suffering. If we stop at concentration and just rest in the blissful, profound stillness that it offers, we will have that experience for the duration of the concentration, and then it will end, because we can't sit in meditation forever. (laughs) We have a body. It has to be fed. We have other things going on. Concentration is a finite state. It's It's a constructed, conditioned state. The Buddha pointed toward something beyond any conditioned state, but it is accessible by creating this special conditioned state of concentration, whether that's concentration in sitting meditation on a single object, or it's concentration of this more of this flow of experience. However, that concentration, non-distraction, is obtained. We are to direct it toward uh, understanding. If we miss that last crucial point, we won't get all the way there. <laughs> So that's, it's really useful to hear the Dharma, to hear that, that instruction. So I'm going to talk for a couple more minutes, even though it's 11 o'clock, because we started a few minutes late. I just want to point out more explicitly the connections between this segment of the path and the other two segments. To bring about some, you know, to bring in some of that holistic understanding. These were the samadhi steps of the path. But I've, as I've been alluding to, uh, they require they are connected immediately to panya, to the wisdom steps of the path. And it's captured nicely in a phrase that Utejaniya says: "That um, awareness alone is not enough." So awareness alone. He, he doesn't mean the vast, spacious non-self-awareness. He means awareness like mindfulness, awareness that something is happening. That's not quite enough. You need to direct, in addition, we have to observe in a certain way, paying attention to the Four Noble Truths or the Three Characteristics, paying attention in an investigative way, looking, where's the suffering here? Where's the end of suffering here? Where's the path here? Having additional component besides just this bare attention. So that brings in the wisdom We've already talked about how caring for our sila is what uh, helps bring about the samadhi. So if you sit down on the cushion and you've robbed a bank that day, this is a classic example, you sit down after doing that, it's going to be real hard to concentrate. It's just the mind's going to be agitated. Um, In the same way, if we've done, said, not done, not said, things that feel unwholesome in a certain way, then we sit down with a lot of concern about that and so cleaning up our external actions and our relationships in certain ways clearing things out of our heart that are triggers all of these things aid the development of the samadhi and the last thing that I'll mention that's not talked about so often is but is important um, and is, is mentioned in the teachings is that samadhi is explicitly intended actually to be developed within a, a context of sila and panya. So samadhi itself producing this very concentrated, bright, pure mind, uh, that's a very powerful thing, actually, a mind like that. And this is the basis for what's talked about in many spiritual texts of spiritual powers and the Buddha even mentions that if you direct your mind in a certain way from a concentrated state you can have certain abilities you don't have to believe or not believe this this is just a 
something that's a component of the teachings. And so the Buddha was careful to place uh, this powerful mind within a context of a larger path that's about developing ethical behavior, using it well, that's about developing wisdom to understand things and therefore be able to serve in the world in, in a certain way. So... Samadhi is not intended to be something separate that's developed as an end in and of itself. And it's not intended to be used for worldly goals of power or um, those kinds of things. It's intended to be used to free the heart and to be used to um, bring about more happiness in ourselves and others. Yeah, that's another holistic way of seeing the path and this is the the segment of it that supports the mental development so thank you those are my thoughts on this portion of the path and I I wonder if there are any comments or questions yeah would you use them would you grab a microphone thank you thank you